Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the book of the prophet Zephaniah. We're looking at this morning, Zephaniah. His name means hidden one. Zephan, hidden, Yah, Yahweh. Yahweh is hidden or Yahweh hides. Talk about that in just a moment. Um, we're going to read a little bit of uh, Zephaniah this morning and work our way through the book. It's a very strong, very simple, but very clear and challenging book. <clears throat> so I invite you to pray with me and then we shall jump into this part of God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, we want to thank you that we have the opportunity to gather together to open your word and to listen to it read and explained. And we ask that you might help us to understand the message and how it applies to our life and to our world. We thank you for the blessing of your word and ask that we might never take it for granted, but that we might be in submission to it and live lives that are obedient to it. To your honour and glory, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So Zephaniah, if you turn in your Bibles to the book, let me read to you just the beginning, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, during the reign of Josiah, king of, king, uh, son of Ammon, king of Judah. <clears throat> Zephaniah is the only of one of the minor prophets who gives us such an extensive genealogy. He gives us four generations. And I think the significance of that is that it goes back all the way to a person called Hezekiah. And we think that is going to be King Hezekiah. And if that's the case, then that makes Zephaniah of royal blood, makes him a prince to the king. And while he prophesied during the reign of a good king, Josiah, he would have been related to him and perhaps had access and probably Josiah was influenced by the preaching and teaching of Zephaniah. So he has royalty in his blood. Hezekiah was a good king. Um, but Hezekiah is the, the king. You might remember the story where he asked for an extension of uh, his life and God gave him an extra 15 years. And the 15 years weren't used very well. During that time, visitors came from Babylon and uh, things were done and said that shouldn't have been done and promised. And, and then Hezekiah dies and he's followed by an absolutely terrible king, one of the worst, Manasseh, his son. And Manasseh took Israel, Judah, back, back to idol worship, reinstituted um, altars throughout the land and even reintroduced Molech, which is sacrificing children to this false god. They were into the fertility goals and astrology. And Manasseh was instrumental in that. In fact, the book of two Chronicles tells us that Manasseh had led Judah to be worse behaved than even the Canaanites before Israel came into the promised land and God had removed them. And now here was God's own people who were misbehaving terribly. Isaiah lived during the time of Manasseh. And in fact, Manasseh was so bad, he forbade Isaiah from preaching and teaching. So Isaiah took to writing and he wrote his prophecy that we have today, which is a magnificent book. But he was opposed by Manasseh and eventually Manasseh arrested him, bound him, put him inside of a tree trunk and then had somebody saw the tree trunk in half. Book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 37, refers to that, that it's referring to the death of Isaiah, the prophet who died in that manner. 
So Manasseh was a terrible king, reigned for 55 years, had such a bad influence on the people of Judah. And then when he passed away, he was succeeded by his son, Ammon, who was a weak king and only reigned for a very short time, two years. And then he was assassinated. And then the next king was Josiah. That's the king that Zephaniah names in verse 1. Now, Josiah, when he became a king, you can read about this in the book of 2 Kings, 22, 23 and following. Uh, he was only eight years old when he became king. Uh, it's obviously too young to reign. And so Hilkiah, who was the high priest, was really the one in charge. And he was leading and discipling and mentoring Josiah until he came of age. And the question was, would this king, Josiah, would he follow the way of his grandfather, Manasseh? Or would he follow the way of his great-great-grandfather, Hezekiah? Well, in his teens, at about the age of 16, Josiah started seeking the Lord. And his heart was inclined towards pleasing God. And then as he became of age and started to assume more of the ruling responsibilities in Jerusalem and Judea, he started instituting change. The temple was in disrepair, so he enabled it to start to be repaired. And in that process, they rediscovered the book of the law book of Deuteronomy. Josiah read it, read God's word, saw how Judah had gotten off track and he sought to institute reforms to bring them back on track. And in Jerusalem, he removed all of the idol altars. And then eventually over the next few years, he extended that into the countryside. But it would appear that the reform was surface level. It was shallow. It didn't penetrate to the heart of the people. They were simply going through the outward motions um, the people's hearts were still inclined to doing their own thing and not submitting and doing God's way. Josiah made a, a foolish, probably ego-driven decision where Egypt was heading north and passing through the land and they wanted to invade Assyria and Josiah didn't give permission to travel through the land and that led to a battle in which he was killed prematurely. His life is taken. And so Zephaniah is speaking into the hearts of Jerusalem and Judah at exactly this sorts of time. The book Zephaniah falls into about two parts. And the two parts follow a similar pattern. He begins with extremely strong language about judgment. We'll look at some of that. But then it ends with this glimmer of hope. What can we do? Well, turn and turn back to God and perhaps he'll have mercy on us. And then again, a second long passage of judgment, this time on the nations. And then that's followed by, again, this element of hope. So judgment, what can we do? There is hope. Judgment, what can we do? And there is a bright future for those of us who turn back to God. So let's turn to the book of Zephaniah. And in the chapter one, in the first part of it, he looks within. He looks within the city of Jerusalem. He looks within the people of Judah. And the language is quite extreme. Um, let's read chapter 1, verse 2. God is speaking. He says, I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both man and beast. I'll sweep away the birds of the air, the fish in the sea, and the idols that cause the wicked to stumble. God is going to wipe everything out. The language is strong. It's about, in our understanding... This is about the end of the world. This is about 
when Jesus comes back and God removes and establishes a new heavens and a new earth. That's what Zephaniah is speaking into. In verse 3, he continues, When I destroy all mankind on the face of the earth, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will destroy every remnant of the Baal worship in this place and the very names of the idolatrous priests. Those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry hosts, those who bow down and swear by the Lord and who also swear by Moloch. Here is this syncretistic form of worship where God's people, while they would still use God's name, Yahweh, the Lord, would mix that with the names of other gods and other forms of worship. Even on their own rooftops, they have idols and they worship the stars, the starry host, astrology. And things haven't changed too much, have they? If you look at our world and you'll find there are millions of people who still consult the stars, who still look at astrology and believe and hope that the, their future is written in the stars. Why consult the stars when you can consult the star maker, the Lord Jesus himself? The Lord says in verse 7 of chapter 1, Be silent before the sovereign Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and he's consecrated those he has invited. Zephaniah doesn't tell us who the guests are, but that's going to be Babylon. And the sacrifice is going to be his own people, Jerusalem and Judah. God is going to wipe them out. Um, but there is a hope of a remnant. But the message is, if you're a disobedient to God and if you're sinning and not living your life aligned with him, he is going to remove you. And Zephaniah mentions this phrase, the day of the Lord. He alludes to it something like 18 times. The day of the Lord is mentioned in the Old Testament and the New Testament about 26 times all up. And 18 of those times are in the book of Zephaniah. It's an emphasis of his message. And the people of Israel had misunderstood. They had a, an incorrect understanding of what was going to happen on that day. They sort of felt that the day of the Lord is when God's going to come, he's going to bless his people and judge the nations. Just like we think that when Jesus comes, he's going to bless his people, us, and he's going to judge and remove the nations. And while that's true, the people of Israel had misunderstood both God's plan and God's purpose. They misunderstood the, the Messiah coming. And so they had this incorrect idea that just because they were physically descended from Abraham, that they were physically Jews, therefore they were safe. Didn't matter what, how they behaved or how they lived or how they worshipped, it's simply because they were physical, physically descendants of Abraham, that therefore they were God's people and they were protected. They could do whatever they like and God would never hurt them. That was their false understanding. And Zephaniah is seeking to correct that. The day of the Lord is not going to be a day when he comes to bless you. It's a day when he is going to come and blast you because you are not aligned with him. That's the picture and that's the analogy he gives. Let's continue in chapter 1 on verse 10. He says, On that day, the day of the Lord, a cry will go up from the fish gate. It's the northern gate of Jerusalem where the fish would come through from the Sea of Galilee or from the Jordan River. A cry will go up from the fish gate, wailing from the new quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, you who live in the market district, all you merchants will be wiped out. 
All who trade in silver will be destroyed. At that time, I'll search Jerusalem with lamps and I'll punish those who are complacent. God is going to come. He's going to look carefully. He's going to evaluate and he is going to judge. Verse 14. The great day of the Lord is near. It's it's near and coming quickly. The cry on the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty warrior shouts his battle cry. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of cloud and darkness, blackness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against Jerusalem. So it doesn't sound like it's good news. And that's certainly the message that Zephaniah is trying to communicate to the people of of, uh, Jerusalem. They're in trouble, that they need to listen and they need to repent. God is coming. God's going to intervene. He's going to call an end to all this sort of behavior. If we jump ahead in our Bibles, if you went to the book of Revelation, then when you get to something like opening of the fourth seal... 25% of the people in the world are killed. When you come to the sixth trumpet, 33% of the people in the world are killed. And then when you get to the seventh bowl, uh, then the islands uh, and the mountains are removed or flattened and there are huge hailstones coming down targeting people. If you read those chapters, that's very similar to the picture and the language of Zephaniah chapter 1. This is the end of the world. This is the removal of the ungodly well what can we do well he tells us at the end of this first part chapter 2 verses 1 to 3 there is something for God's people to do in the midst of this terrible outpouring of God's wrath God encourages his people gather together um, Call an assembly of people together to seek God's face, verse 2, before the decree takes effect and that day passes like wind-blown chaff, before the Lord's fierce anger comes on you. Verse 3, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, you who do what he commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility, and perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. It may be, gather together, pray, repent, ask God for mercy and forgiveness. Um, Seek righteousness to do justice and to live rightly and be a humble people before God, not proud and arrogant. And Zephaniah says, perhaps God will preserve you from it. Um, It certainly reminds us that when God judges, he does make a distinction He doesn't just carpet bomb everything. He has a way of preserving his people from his wrath. That's what he did in the land of Egypt with the plagues. Uh, The people of Israel were preserved from those. He did it with the flood. When God wiped out all life on the earth, he preserved his remnant, Noah, in the ark. And in the same way, God will preserve us as we are faithful and obedient to him, as we seek him faithfully have faith in him and are faithful in our lives. That's a look within. Uh, Zephaniah continues describing this terrible coming wrath and this time on all of the nations. Now he looks around the city of Judah and he looks at 
in every direction. He looks to the west, he looks to the east, he looks to the south, and he looks to the north. And he names these different nations. And all of them at some point had hassled Judah or Israel, God's people. And all of them likewise were corrupt and wicked and all of them will fall. God is the God of the nations. He's the one who has the casting vote. He is the one who determines the boundaries of the nations. He is the one who appoints governments. He is the one who raises up and who puts down. God is in control. And there is coming a day, Zephaniah is predicting, when God will pour out his wrath and his indignation. He'll consume everything, just like the flood. Only this time, it'll be with fire. Just like Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3. Zephaniah is teaching us that God is intensely irritated. His anger is like simmering. It's heading for the boiling over bit, but it's, right now it's simmering. And there is still time to repent. Um, and if they don't listen, if they don't pay heed, then God's anger will continue to grow and it will simply boil over. And the book of Zephaniah is describing for us that boiling over of God's anger, of being poured out. It's certainly true God loves us, cares for us, is jealous for us to be right with him. Uh, but God is also furious with evil, with sin. And he's furious with people who refuse to come to him for mercy and forgiveness. As God looks at our world and all that's going on in our world, then he must likewise have an element of not just disappointment, but of being furious, not being very happy at all about marriages breaking up, about domestic violence, about the abuse of children, about racial discrimination of those who have authority of misusing it and abusing it for their own means of gangs and murders and crimes and all of the evil that is going on in our world, God knows and notices and does not want it. He's cranky about it, furious about it. This balance between God loves us and yet God is angry with the sin of the world is to be held in tension. What can we do? Well, what Zephaniah said in chapter 2, seek God. Ask him for mercy. Ask him to forgive us, to seek righteousness and to seek humility. And then Zephaniah, having done this, looking around the nations at um, what they had done wrong, then comes back and zeroes in again in chapter 3 upon Jerusalem. Woe to that city of oppressors, rebellious and defiled. Verse 2, she, the city of Jerusalem, obeys no one. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are like roaring lions. Her rulers are evening wolves. They leave nothing for the morning. What does that mean? <clears throat> Zephaniah likens the leaders, particularly of Jerusalem, to these ravenous animals, lions and wolves, who eat everything that night. They're not concerned about the morning. They're not concerned about the future. They're concerned about now and satisfying their own whims and their own things. They have no concern for the future or for the next generation. Verse 4, her prophets are unprincipled, they're treacherous people. Her priests profane the sanctuary and do violence to the Lord. The Lord within her is righteous and he does no wrong. 
Morning by morning, he dispenses justice, and every new day, he doesn't fail. Yet the unrighteous know no shame, forgotten how to blush. They get away with it, they're proud of it, and they encourage others in doing it. So what does God say? Verse 6, I have destroyed nations and their strongholds are demolished. I've left their streets completely deserted with no one passing through. Verse 7, Jerusalem, <clears throat> I thought surely you will fear me and you will accept correction. And then her place of refuge would not be destroyed uh, and not all of my punishments would come on, her, come on her. But listen, but they were still eager to act corruptly in all that they did. God told them what to do and they were absolutely eager to not do it, to do their own thing. Therefore, God says, verse 8, Therefore wait for me, for the day I will stand up and I will testify. I have decided to assemble the nations, to gather the kingdoms of the world, and I will pour out my wrath on them, all of my fierce anger. The whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. The whole world. Every man, every woman, every child, every nation, gathered together before him. The New Testament certainly amplifies that for us and the teaching of the Lord Jesus, that when he comes, he'll sit on his throne and all nations will be gathered before him. And God will separate those who believe from those who don't believe. And those who believe will enter into a time of blessing. Those who don't believe will enter into a time of eternal punishment and woe. God makes a distinction when he judges. And God is going to judge. He's going to come and he's going to put all things right. He's going to settle accounts. He's going to examine our lives. He'll expose our sins and our secrets and he will eliminate the guilty. What can we do? Well, seek God. Repent. Ask him for mercy. Seek his righteousness and to do so in humility. So it's a very strong message of coming judgment and total annihilation. But at the end of it, Zephaniah ends on this remarkable description of the ultimate future. He's looked within and then said what we can do. He's looked around and then back at Jerusalem and said it's all over. But it's not the complete end. Chapter 3 verses 9 to 20 has this wonderful description of what lies ahead. So it's look within, look around, now it's look beyond, look way ahead, what's coming. And the New Testament encourages us to do exactly the same. Verse 9 talks about international godliness. The nations are going to come to faith. Then I will purify the lips of the peoples, the nations, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. A time in the future will come when all nations will be pure in God's sight and will worship him, serve him, call on him. Everybody. This is the new world. If it's not the millennium, then it's the new age, the new heaven and the new earth. And God talks about this wonderful description that the fire that <clears throat> came to consume is also the fire that will purify. Um, while God will destroy the wicked nations, he will also transform us into a new nation, into one family, into one people of God. In verse 12, the Lord says, um, But I will leave within you the meek and the humble. The remnant of Israel will trust in the name of the Lord. 
They will do no wrong. They will tell no lies. A deceitful tongue will not be found in their mouth. Um, they will eat and lie down and no one will make them afraid. A time of future security, of us being transformed by grace and by forgiveness of God's work in our life. Zephaniah is looking ahead and seeing that. He's talking about the impact of the gospel. Verse 15, the Lord has taken away your punishment. Uh, the Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day, verse 17, the Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take delight in you, in his love. He will no longer rebuke you, but he will rejoice over you with singing. It's a remarkable verse that God will be not only with us and in our midst, that he will be our God and we will be his people, but he will delight in us. And in fact, he will rejoice over us with singing. God will be singing for joy about us, his bride. And then in verse 20, he finishes with this, again, a wonderful promise of God is going to gather all of the believers together. He's going to restore and he's going to honour them. This is the future kingdom age. Look beyond towards the end. God is in ultimate control. Regardless of what you think is going on in the world today, God will have his way. And Zephaniah fits into that picture of um, God's people had... In the book of Ezekiel, chapters 8, 9, and 10, the, the glory of the Lord had risen for, over the temple and had gone to the threshold and had moved to the gates of the temple and then to the gates of the city and then had left. God had left Jerusalem. Well, in Zephaniah, in this last bit, it's God is going to be returning. And when he returns, he will judge the nations and he'll restore his people as one on a new heaven and on a new earth. Zephaniah speaks of this God of judgment as well as this God of mercy, anticipating, as I said, the gospel. And so we have a choice. Which one will you choose? To ignore God is to choose his justice. What we need to do is to come to God and to repent and to ask him for mercy. And only bad people do that. Only people willing to acknowledge that they're not right. And let me finish by simply saying this, in heaven, in this new age, when God the King will be in our midst, when Jesus will reign from the city of Jerusalem, that heaven will be a multinational, multiracial um, gathering of people who are one family. And then we will all be colorblind, not literally, but relationally. Then there'll be no more discrimination and abuse. And then... We will dwell in peace. And that's what the church is to be now. We are to be a picture of that coming day, an example to the nations. So it's a wonderful book and I commend it to you and ask, encourage you to read it a couple of times through and ask God to speak to you. It contains some great truths. And let me finish by saying Zephaniah's name means hidden by God. And I think what it means is his mother hid him during the reign of King Manasseh, when Manasseh was gathering up all the royal princes and offering them as infants and burning them to the god Molech. But Zephaniah's mum took him, hid him for a future time of ministry, just like Moses' mother hid him, so Zephaniah's mum hid him. Hence his name, Zephaniah, the hidden one, 
hidden by God for God. So too for us, God has been overseeing our life and he wants to use us for his purposes. Let's submit to him and make ourselves available to him. Let's pray together. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for this book of Zephaniah, uh, a book that many of us probably haven't read that much, but it contains a great message that you're a God of justice, a God of truth and of right, and that you're going to put things right. And Lord, we trust in that and rejoice in it. And we are grieved, like you are, at many of the um, injustices and cruelties and bad things that are happening right now in our world and people seem to be getting away with it but you will call them to account so lord we look to you we seek your face we ask you to be merciful to us that you would strengthen us and help us to walk in the right way to be righteous and to do so humbly to be available for you to use us in any way you see fit just like you use zephaniah so lord here we are Fill us with your spirit and use us. For Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen.